on. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hi, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. So this week, we have a very interesting topic. We're going to be talking about the space race, which was from 1955 to 1975. Uh, first of all, I would just like to say uh, welcome back to Sergeant Paul. He was uh, sick last week, and so he wasn't here. We weren't able to hear about the uh, MiG-25 Foxbat, which is very unfortunate, but we do hope to hear about that sometime in the future. Isn't that right, Sergeant Paul? Absolutely. Good to be back. All right, so let's get into the space race. So this isn't 100% aviation based, but we're sort of uh, we're sort of going off into aerospace. We're expanding into space exploration because it's a very cool topic, and it's sort of an extension of uh, aviation. So first, we have to understand what sparked this race, and to do that, we have to understand the U.S. and Soviet relations in the mid 20th century. So basically, in the 1950s, we have to understand what was going on between the world's two big superpowers. So this race was more than just a race for milestones in space exploration. It was a battle between capitalism and communism, pretty much between good and evil. Now, the global community was watching this intently, and both sides knew that the ideology that triumphed in this race would, glo would uh, globally dominate. They would pretty much be, um, they'd be proven as the superior way of life. So communism and capitalism are complete opposites, and they were battling it out because um, pretty much if they won the space race, it would mean that their way of life was better than the other. So this really, it maybe had a little bit to do with space, but overall it had to do with geopolitics and it had to do with the communists and the capitalists trying to one-up each other. Right, it was less of something specifically dedicated to space and more like, kind of a continuation of the arms race. Like something yeah, exactly. And like just just an extra field to dabble in. It's also important to note that a lot of the technology that was developed for the space race was also used in their long range ballistic missiles for both countries. So the big ICBMs, they were mainly developed based on the technology that they used in the space race. So pretty much however like whenever they pushed each other harder it essentially pushed the other one to try and um, to try and develop more technology to defend themselves with. Uh, so just quickly, we're going to hand it over to um, Sergeant McConnell, who's going to explain a little bit about uh, the technology that was salvaged after the war and um, some of the scientists who were brought back. So take it away, Sergeant McConnell. Thank you. So following the end of World War II, the United States and Soviet Union both rushed to salvage as much of Germany's rocket technology and as many scientists as they could. Among the scientists recruited by the Americans uh, was um, Thorner Von Braun, um, one of the founding members of NASA and famous for his V-2 rockets. The Soviet meanwhile recruited Sergei Korslev, uh, who became head of the Soviet space program. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So, yeah, as you said, uh, Werner von Braun, he was head of the uh, V2 rocket program under uh, Adolf Hitler. So he definitely had a lot of knowledge in how rockets work and in how missiles work. 
And that's exactly why the Americans wanted him. They wanted to not only increase their production of ICBMs and uh, develop new technology for surface-to-air missiles, sub-launch missiles, anti-ship missiles, things along those lines, but they also wanted to beat the Soviets in the space race. So interesting fact is that Werner von Braun has actually been called by many people the father of rockets because he developed the uh, V2, which was essentially the very first major rocket in the world to be used. So there were, of course, rockets before this, but they're usually very light and didn't carry uh, either a large or any payload. So the V2 was one of the very first rockets to actually carry a heavy payload. So they figured his expertise in that area could be very useful. And in the end, it did turn out to be useful. So at first, it seemed as though the Soviets were winning as they had many achievements under their belt. So some of them included Sputnik 1, which was the first satellite in space, which was in 1957. Um, next was uh, Laika, which was the first animal in space in 1957, and she was a small dog. Unfortunately, in that case, the dog ended up um, not making it through the mission. She ended up dying due to a malfunction on the ship, which caused the uh, whole thing to overheat. And uh, she was claimed to be a hero of the Soviet Union. However, she did pass away. Uh, later on, the Soviets did keep experimenting with dogs in space, and this actually did work out much better um, with them developing new life support systems that allowed the dogs to keep surviving uh, better in space. And that's how they also developed some of the life support systems when they started sending humans up. Um, so next was Luna 1 and Luna 2, which was the first probe to pass the moon and the first probe to impact the moon, and that was in 1959. Um, what's interesting about this is that before then, no object, no man-made object had ever left Earth's sphere of influence. So when they sent something past the moon, and then later they sent something that actually impacted the moon, that was absolutely massive. That was the first time in history that anything like that had ever been done. So following that, Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space in 1961. And again, this was a absolutely massive milestone and the United States was uh, dragging behind. Um, next was Mars One, which was the first probe ever launched to Mars. This is done actually in 1962. So these guys were thinking very far ahead. Like nowadays we're thinking about uh, sending people to Mars and we send Mars rovers there all the time. But back in 62, before they'd even landed on the moon, Soviets were already thinking one step further and they were considering going to Mars. And that is absolutely insane. Um, shortly after that, uh, Valentina Treshkakov became the first woman in space in 1963. Following that was Alexei Leonov who became the first person to do a spacewalk in 1965. Now what we mean by spacewalk is when they put on the full suit, like their full spacesuit, they tether themselves to the ship and they go out into actual space. This was the first time that a person had ever done that. So again, this was a massive accomplishment. And again, it was achieved by the Soviet Union. Even so, more, this... um, oh, sorry, if I may. It's sorry, even more... Was... sorry yeah, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yes, but, um, I gotta say, it's, gotta say, Leonov's uh, spacewalk, gotta say, the thing that makes it like really impressive is that, is that, and then, like very impressively, just four years later, there was the first man on the moon. Like I think that was that's really impressive right there. 
Yeah, it is. And it's impressive, like just to think about the scale of all of this, because the first person in history flew in 1903. The Wright brothers flew for the very first time in 1903. And then in 1961, um, just shy of 60 years later, a person had already been in space. That is absolutely insane to think of, especially when you uh, consider that for hundreds of years before then, technology had advanced at a fairly slow pace, like um, something like the uh, 1700s would look nearly identical to the 1600s. There might be a few adjustments here or there, but when you compare 1863 to 1963, they're two completely different worlds entirely. And that is really amazing. And that is really impressive to think about. Absolutely. Uh, right. So sorry, what I was just going to say there um, before we sort of sort of talking at the same time and we couldn't figure out who was going there for a second. One of the, one of the sort of boundaries of doing this over Zoom. But um, what I was going to say is if you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, hey, it looks like the Soviets are winning right now, you would not be mistaken. The Soviets absolutely were winning the space race at this point in the uh, early to mid-1960s. So following the launch of uh, the ship Freedom 7, which was carrying Alan Shepard, who was the first American in space, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech to Congress in which he vowed to put an American on the moon before the Soviets, and that he would do that before the end of the decade, which was absolutely amazing, because you have to think of, at this time, space travel, uh, sorry, manned space travel had only really been within a couple hundred kilometers of the Earth's surface. The only thing that had ever gone past Earth's sphere of influence was unmanned probes. So to say that in 10 years, they were going to land men on the moon was absolutely insane. But then again, just 60 years prior, flying a plane would have been absolutely insane. Going to space would have been absolutely insane. So I think he was fairly justified in saying that and saying that we can do this in 10 years. So around about this time, on September 12th, 1962, JFK gave his very famous moon speech at Rice University, where he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This is one of my favorite quotes throughout all of history, because it is so true. You should never try and accomplish something just because it is easy. You should try and do it because it is a challenge, because it is hard. Now, the full speech was well over 20 minutes, and I would highly encourage anyone listening to this to go and actually listen to the speech. We obviously can't put the whole thing in here because it would take up an entire episode. But seriously, go listen to it. Just Google JFK Moon speech. Uh, JFK has always been a great speaker. Um, he has a ton of great speeches, but of them, this one is honestly my favorite because it is so inspiring. So if you ever need any inspiration, if you're ever feeling down, just go listen to the speech by JFK. It is absolutely amazing. So with this promise, the engineers at NASA had a lot on their plate and they had a relatively short amount of time to work with. So I think a lot of people don't really realize how short amount of time this really is because they hear, oh, we have 10 years, that's loads of time. However, that's 10 years to completely design a new rocket, completely redesign all the procedures that NASA has ever worked with, train people who have never done this before, and from people who never will do it, which is absolutely insane. And they had to develop brand new computers 
at a time when the computer hadn't really existed that much. And when a computer filled up an entire room, they had to develop them to be small enough to fit inside this spacecraft. And they had to do that in 10 years. So it sounds a right. lot more daunting when you hear all that. Right. The When it comes to any anything space-related, 10 years is a very short amount of time. It is. like You have to look at... Um, a lot of their plans nowadays, like it took the uh, International Space Station, I think, 10 or 20 years to be built. And that's already when they had NASA fully founded, they had everything completely established, and they had the help of people from around the world. When they're doing this, they were competing against other people, and most of their procedures had not been established yet. So it is absolutely insane that they were able to do that in 10 years, and the JFK expected them to do it in 10 years. It's actually a good comparison here would actually be the amount of time the F-35 was in R&D, for example. Just as an example, it's been in R&D since the 1980s. Like this, designing stuff takes a while. Yeah, I think think one good lesson to take away from this, though, is that you can get a lot more done if you put things on a time limit. If you say you have 10 years to complete this, people are going to start going into overdrive, working as hard as they can to try and get this done in time. If you just say, get it done whenever you feel like it, people aren't really gonna work on it too much. Um, Let's see, so NASA ended up founding the uh, Apollo and Gemini programs to develop the technology and the plans that they would need for this colossal mission. So by the mid 1960s, it seemed as though NASA was making very good progress on this. Apollo one was scheduled to be the first flight of the Apollo module. And its purpose was to test the equipment and the procedures that would be used on the following lunar missions. However, tragedy struck on the 27th of January, 1967, when during a routine training mission, a fire broke out in the capsule, killing astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger B. Chaffee. In honor of the three men, the launch pad Apollo 1 had been assigned at Kennedy Space Center was turned into a memorial for the astronauts. And when Apollo 11 finally landed on the moon two years later, the Apollo 1 mission patch was left on the surface. So another quick interesting thing is that on the moon's surface, there is actually a plaque that was left by, I believe it was Apollo 17, that is a memorial dedicated to all of the astronauts and all the cosmonauts who gave their lives in the mission to go to the moon. Because there were actually quite a few who uh, didn't make it uh, when they were trying to get to the moon. So it's very nice that they left that little memorial up there for them. So following this accident, several new procedures and systems were developed in order to ensure astronaut safety in the future. So after numerous more space missions, on July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. On board were U.S. astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. I do just want to quickly point out Michael Collins because I feel like a lot of people forget him when they're talking about the moon landings. Like we all know Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, but this is like a question that comes up a lot in trivia. I've noticed who was the third guy on the lunar mission, and a lot of people can't name him. So I feel really bad for Michael Collins because he did just as important as a job. His job was to orbit around the moon, piloting the spacecraft, so that when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were down there, when they had to come back up, they could meet up with the mothership and they could head back to Earth. Without that, it, it would have been very hard for them to get, actually get back to Earth. All right, so um, during the four-day flight, several problems arose, including malfunctions, which would force the lunar lander to be piloted manually. 
So remember just a minute ago when we were talking about how they needed to develop brand new computers in order to land on the moon? Well, these computers ended up not working. So they had to land it completely by hand, which was something that would be absolutely unthinkable today. But in the 1960s, this was actually quite common because autopilots back then couldn't land planes. So all these guys were usually fighter pilots. So landing something without the assistance of a computer, for them, it was definitely a challenge, but it was one that they could easily handle. I mean, how autopilot was only able to properly land planes until just a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. So it's absolutely insane. But a lot of times you've heard that uh, like modern astronauts and modern pilots, they rely on a lot of their systems too much. These guys could not do that. So they were very experienced in landing by hand. So I think that's probably what uh, saved the mission here. The fact that these pilots were so good that they could just land it by hand. All right, so despite all of the challenges that they faced, on July 20th, 1969, the lunar module, which was named Eagle, landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong stepped down the ladder and became the first person to walk on the moon, famously saying, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Again, another very famous quote, absolutely inspirational quote. Um, again, I encourage you to look it up watch Neil Armstrong as he actually comes down the ladder and as he says that. It is very inspirational. So following the American landing on the moon, both the United States and Soviet Union began cutting back funding towards their space programs, and the space race had sort of fizzled out by the mid-1970s with East-West relations improving. So really, there wasn't much purpose to funding the space programs after the space race had completed. Like that was the whole point of this race. They were just trying to one-up the other person and they were trying to prove which way of life was better, capitalism or communism. And so the Americans, seeing that they had done this by landing on the moon, cut their uh, funding to NASA by a massive amount. And the Soviets did the same, thinking that they were beat and they were ashamed. Um, I honestly think maybe they could have gained that back if they had continued with their Mars mission However, I think with Soviet technology in the 1960s and 70s, that was a little unrealistic, especially considering they probably didn't have the funds for it whatsoever. So despite the American moon landings, it is still widely debated as to whether the Americans won or whether the Soviets were victorious. And um, McConnell, Paul, and I were all talking about this before we actually started recording. And what's interesting is that Paul actually thinks the uh, Soviets won the race, and McConnell, I, uh, I still don't think we know what your uh, affiliation is here. Do you think the Americans won or the I, Soviets won? I agree with you, Anderson. I think the Americans won. All right. That's good to hear. So, Paul, can you tell us then why you don't think that? Why do you think the Soviets were the ones who won the space race? Personally, my main reasoning for the, for the Soviet victory is the fact that they had a whole bunch of accomplishments while the americans had you know the one big one the soviets had a bunch of slightly smaller accomplishments over time and that would gradually add up to be more than the big one also they made the an-225 which is specifically for the space race and the array of baron okay yeah the uh, the an-225 was a pretty awesome plane um 
However, I think my main argument in favor of the American side is we have to think of this race as a literal race. Like if this was a 20 kilometer race, the Soviets were in the lead at the five kilometer, the 10 kilometer and the 15 kilometer mark, but then they sort of slowed down and the Americans passed them and won. So I think you're thinking of this in uh, views of who had the most like first achievements, but I think we need to think of it in terms of who actually won the race overall, like who actually beat the other to the moon. Well, even then, the space the space race is, and re- realistically, the space race is just kind of, kind of what's what's the way to put it? A like an extension of the arm of the arms race, where you're just trying to one up each other with better technology. But well, then, however, the thing is, if, with if that, that's sorry, if that's the case, though, then you still could make the argument that the Americans won because however, the Americans I'm not done. did win the Cold War. And I'm, I'm not done there. The okay. <laughs> the ar- the arms race is done in a way where there is no one real winner because it it shouldn't really be defined as a race in general. <laughs> just just oh, damn getting defensive says McConnell. Okay, well <laughs> yeah, she she said that in the chat. Um, yeah, this is getting into a heated debate here, but Paul, I think we can safely say the Americans won the Cold War when you consider that, like, following 1991, the Soviet Union completely collapsed and they their economy sort of ceased yeah, to that's, exist. That's more, of a, that's more of an economic thing. like. <laughs> yes, but considering their military had no way to pay for its weapons, I think that's a, a fairly good way of saying that the Americans won that race. And if we're yeah. stating that the space race is an extension of the Cold War, I think it's safe to say what, then that what the I'm trying the space to race. what I'm trying to say is that the is that the arms race and by extension the space race shouldn't be really defined as a race since there is no real endpoint and it's and it's only marked by the achievements you made along the way rather than the endpoint and therefore. The, therefore, the big achievement at the end is completely irrelevant to, like, you get what I mean. I, I do. I understand what you're going for. But I think the fact that the Soviets sort of, their space program sort of crumbled after their failure to land on the moon uh, sort of displays that. And yes, the United States cut back on their spending, but they still did have a lot of very major projects. Like you saw uh, the space shuttle in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, We saw the International Space Station. And well, yes, that was an international effort. It was mainly spearheaded by NASA in joint cooperation with the Russian Space Agency. Talking about the 1960s here. I know we're talking about the 1960s, but the fact that the Soviet space program and hell, even Soviet Union itself sort of failed and ceased to exist after this Cold War and after the space race, I think that's a fairly solid indicator that uh, the Americans ended up winning that race. Um, you know, I think at this point, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree because I don't think you're gonna convince me that the Soviets won and I don't think I'm gonna convince you that the Americans won. Yeah, probably not. I think that Paul, you have some very valid points. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I Whoa. think you do. I think you do. I think you have some amazing points, valid points, but I have to stick on the American side of Anderson because, you know, at the end, the Americans did win. 
Okay, that's debatable as just proven, but um, <laughs> I'm glad you're siding with me. Um, anyway, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Have a good one.